rolling. All right, everybody, we're here, or I'm here, and he's here, Arthur, uh, Arthur, Arthur Sokolik, Arthur right, Sokolik, got <laughs> got uh, here, got him here in the, in the studio here, um, he's, uh, he's been writing for, for many, many years, he's, uh, he's an author of various, uh, forms of, uh, fiction and, uh, poetry and, uh, uh a few different genres, you'd say, right? Sure, absolutely. And um, by the way, thanks for inviting me on the show. No problem. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, well, first off, I want to ask you a question that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, that's why I wanted to get your take on it. Uh, what, what inspired you uh, at a young age to write? You know, that's a pretty interesting subject because it really wasn't writing that inspired me. It was an artist. Um, I was 16, uh, and at that time I was reading a lot of books that were based on television shows. Uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. had a series of books. Uh, Wild Wild West had, had books. and there were show So I was reading those kinds of like light teen fiction. And I happened to be in a bookstore with a friend, and I'm, I pull out in the fantasy section this book, and there were several of them, and this artist, Frank Frazetta, was doing the covers to this series called Conan by Robert E. Howard. And I'd never heard of Robert E. Howard, and I'd never heard of Conan, but I was so amazed by these, these paintings on the front of the cover, I just decided I was going to have to, I had to buy one. And I was literally trying to choose by which had the coolest cover. Mm -hmm. um, so I finally picked one, and it changed really my world. I, I went from the light teen fiction, because uh, back in the day, it's not like Harry Potter, like where you might have light teen fiction that's really very well written. It was generally, they were generally would play off of television shows and you would get very little description, very little color in the book. It was pretty much just like, okay, you know what the characters look like because you watch the show and, and here you go. But all of a sudden I get immersed in this universe that is completely different. The, the language is thick, it's purple, it's carnal, and it just blew me away. And it changed everything that I thought. So even though Robert E. Howard was the author that pulled me into the field of writing, it was actually Frank Frazetta that sort of got me on the hook. And I just decided I was going to uh, write a fantasy novel. I, I, you know, once I, I started reading them, I went, oh, I want to do this. However, <laughs> um, the thing is, is that um, it's a lot easier said than done to write a novel. And, and uh, I, I have many attempts that ended at 80 pages, 100 pages. Uh, and so I started slowly moving from there to poetry because of rock and roll in the 70s and I thought maybe I would be a lyricist which brings me to another of my sort of icons uh, a guy named Peter Sinfield who wrote lyrics for King Crimson and then I decided no that's what I want to do wow. so lyrics um were you, were you, had you been into music prior to that, or just kind of something you <laughs> no. fell into? Or? Uh, the, well, uh, again, but my life seems to be composed of funny stories, but I had a good friend at the time, and this was in the late 60s, early 70s, and he said, look, I've got this great idea, let's form a band. 
And I'm going, well, that's great, but neither of us can play an instrument. Well, and he was kind of arguing that, well, you know, the monkeys, they don't play instruments, and Kiss, they don't play very well. But, you know, I I thought, well, okay, because, I I mean, I had this idea about writing poetry, and and I thought, well, I could maybe write some lyrics to songs. So, and I had a little bit of keyboard experience because I had played a little bit when I was a kid. I got some lessons. So I could actually kind of bang stuff out. Uh, And um, that's kind of where the poetry came into it. Uh, And when that, our little group sort of splintered, I moved to another group and I basically said, this is what I want to do. I'd like to write lyrics. I want, I want, I'll work the the soundboard and I want to write lyrics and that's kind of where the inspiration for the poetry came from. Wow, that's pretty neat. That see, inspiration comes from all over the place. It comes from uh, friends, uh, just unlikely sources, wouldn't you say? Well, it it it's sort of a progression, um, and yeah, absolutely unlikely sources because I had never in my wildest dreams thought about the idea of being in a band because mm-hmm. I didn't really feel that you know I could. I didn't really think I had anything to offer musically. And so when music changed in the in the it went from again sort of like it sort of mirrored the whole the whole uh, book thing whereas television or rather um television had sort of like this sort of light airy feel in the mid 60s and moved into more serious subjects in the 70s so did writing so did music. You went from, you know, pop music you know, uh, uh, mercy beat sounds to a more complicated sounds in the late 60s, early 70s. Prog rock was coming in. King Crimson with, with Peter Sinfield. Yes, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You were getting a little more jazz involved in, in rock and roll. So uh, it kind of flowed where I sort of flowed with that new sort of uh, movement, basically. So yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like the elements of the world around me sort of dictated the way, the directions that I went. Yeah, and, uh, you know, just writing lyrics, that is, it's like pretty much a natural transition from that to poetry, I would think, you know? Well, it, it, it influenced me in that, yeah, when I write poetry, I like to think that most of the poetry could be put to music. And so I write this old-fashioned sort of poetry, which is rhyme and meter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I um, I like to think that there is there's a melody out there that will fit these words. I mean, I know that there are certain artists, I'm not sure, but I thought I had read that Bernie Taupin wrote lyrics and gave them to Elton John, and Elton John put the song to the lyrics. Usually it's the other way around, because it's much easier to have the melody and then write the words. But in my mind, I thought that's what I would do. And, you know, I actually had some success in offering certain lyrics to the second group that I was in, and they did turn them into uh, songs. Mm-hmm. And so that always excited me, the idea that it could be valued simply for its, its content uh, or it could be valued for its musical content. You know, the, the idea that it could be added to music to create something greater. Yeah, yeah that's, that's something. Um, I think going back a little bit, let's rewind about the uh, Frank Rosetta, um, those images on the... And the, where they were, they were on the Conan books at the time, I take it, yeah. Um, I mean, just it was it was the visual image that brought to life um, the inspiration in your head to to want to to write a fantasy book, correct? It drew me into the book. I probably would not have picked up the book had I not 
seeing those paintings. Yeah. It inspired me. We we both know someone in, in we we both know someone who says that he sees images and he writes to the images that he sees. And I think these images definitely opened me up. I mean, I was not used to uh, this kind of writing. Uh, somebody asked me, well, what do you think? Uh, do, you, do you like it? Or I mean, when I had read the book you know, halfway through it, I said, I don't know. I, because it was so different. It was so thick. He, uh, Ro uh, Robert E. Howard would spend so much time talking about the, the surroundings, and, and, and he, he made it very carnal and very, very visual. And, you know, Conan didn't just kill people. He's, he would split their skulls to the teeth with an axe. I mean, and it was like, you know, you're 16, you're going, whoa, you know, what is this? Because, you know, you're not used to it. I mean, television was so yeah. sanitary, and the books right. that they're based on were very sanitary, very clean. And these books were not clean. And so, yeah, absolutely, um, it was, I would attribute everything to Frank Frazetta. Yeah, that's great. That's, he's one of my inspirations as well. And Robert E. Howard, for sure. I, I really, yeah. really was sorry to hear that Frank Rosetta suffered the stroke, and, and uh, I had really wanted, I, you know, in this day of conventions, I had really hoped to be able to meet him and get yeah. him to sign something, and then unfortunately, of course, his, I think, I, I think he was left-handed, and I think the stroke killed his left hand. He had to try to learn to paint wow. with his right hand, but it was never as good as paintings with, with his left hand. I think that's true. I'm not positive on that. You know, that's one of the reasons why, and I, you know, I hope I never have one, but I, I do draw occasionally with my left hand because I, just in case something happens, I want to be able to do, to do that to some degree mm -hmm. to express myself, you know, uh, at least art-wise. But that's, yeah, that, that's what a legend, what a legend. Absolutely. Is, and, you know? and it's probably, it's probably a person who, a lot of younger people may not realize that a lot of these things sprang from his work. And I mean, because there are, there are images that I think you can kind of see in modern art. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't think of the, the gentleman's last name, Boris Vallejo? Mm -hmm. the, I mean, he, his, yeah. he uh, has an artist, artistic style that's similar to Frank Vizetta's. Uh, but Frank Rosetta did an interesting thing, I thought. It seems like in a lot of his works, the central figure is very distinct and clear. And as you move out from the edges, he kind of blurs the images. So it focuses your eye on that central image. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I always wanted to meet him. I always wanted to get an autograph, and it's never going to happen, unfortunately. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about Stan Lee. <laughs> I mean, at yeah. all the conventions he went to, especially towards the end, and I just didn't have a chance to go, and it's like, gosh, I mean, that would have been amazing. But It would have been amazing, yeah. but it, it would also have been very expensive. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, because his, his uh, I, I think the cost to get his autograph was a lot higher than the average person at some of the yeah. conventions that are, that right. are out there. He was in the special room, the room that you couldn't see into. They would, I mean, there are certain actors and actresses that when they come to conventions, they wall them off because they oh, don't yeah. want you getting free pictures. Oh, yeah. So um, basically, yeah, you would have to be standing in that line waiting. But I agree with you. I would have liked to have met yeah. him. Yeah. He was everybody's eccentric uncle, you know, it's, from our generation. Yeah, yeah. It's You're, just weird. You feel, I think everyone kind of feels like they kind of know, know him in a way because he was so open about his who he was and his, uh, just... 
Well, again, I'm, a, I'm of the generation where I was reading the comics that he was writing. And so I looked forward as much to Stan's soapbox, mm -hmm. uh, which were his comments you know, on whatever issues he wanted to comment on, as much as I did the comic book itself. And you felt like he was like your eccentric uncle. I mean, you, you mm -hmm. felt like you knew him. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm sure he's had a million fanboys tell him that, and I'm, I'm very happy that he... He's, he's experienced the success that he did before he passed away with, with all the movies because, I mean, he was, yeah, he was one of those fundamental building blocks, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and just the, the craziness of his, of his writing was really kind of inspiring. Well, enough us. I love Stan Lee, but that's another podcast for another day. Uh, let me keep this focus on my next question. Um, who were, and, and we touched on some already, um, as far as writing goes... Uh, who are some of your main influences or influencers? You know. Well, um, I took a I took a lot of of my influence from those pulp writers, those those fiction writers. That there was a, a publishing house, Lancer, and Lancer seemed to have uh, a lot of these early writers, writers from the thirties, forties, and fifties, and their writing was basically basically a lot of them wrote for. Uh, fantasy magazines. So they would write. They would write for these magazines that, that might be 20, 30, 40 page long stories, and it was generally it was generally very, very carnal, very bloody, and it it was one of those things where you know I don't think they were really looking to win any sort of awards for their writing style. They were there to pound a good story, and that would make you go, "Wow, you know that was a great story." So I mean. Uh, you know, I, th I I'm trying to think back to some of the names. Um, I mean, certainly Elsprague de Camp uh, was was an author. Uh, Robert E. Howard, um, and um, I'm trying to remember. I cannot remember the name of the author. There was a series he did with, which was I think Fafrit and, and the Gray Mouser. Oh, Fritz uh, Fritz Lieber. Fritz Lieber. Lieber. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right sorry now. about the sorry about the pronunciation, guys. Yeah. If I'm way off, but <laughs> but um, yeah, loved his stuff and and. Um, Actually, um, George R. R. Martin. Uh, he was mm -hmm. later. He wasn't from the '30s, but right. uh, he wrote stuff in the '60s. And I remember reading his early fantasy hero, uh, who was very much like Conan. Okay. And I can't remember any of his character. Huh. It's been a long time. But yeah, he had uh, he had his own version of Conan. So was was his style back then like it is now, or was kind of uh, was it more? Robert E. Howard esque. Yeah, I would say it was probably more Robert E. Howard esque. Okay. I mean, when you look at when you look at Game of Thrones, and I, I read probably the first three or four books from the series. I mean, there was much more involved yeah. than than the character that he was he was writing for back then, which was more of a straight adventure story, mm -hmm. plotted out in you know in twenty pages. You know where the character's going and what he's doing. You know, with Game of Thrones, it was completely different. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it it was it was hard in a way to keep up with it because it would be four or five years between books. Yeah, and you know, I mean, at some point, I think after the third or fourth book, I kind of just gave up. I just said because I I couldn't remember the <laughs> I couldn't remember the characters and the yeah. relationships. And I, I, I understand people have problems with that with even the television show. You know, I, I, there's magazines that have basically the uh, the family history, so you know, oh, this person is in this family and that person. Right. Well, when you're reading the book, and then all of a sudden, five years later, he comes out with a new one. You're 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 kind of going, who is that? Who is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, you can definitely appreciate the world building and the relationships yeah. that he spent so much time on. And it just, it, whenever you can do that, it adds such an amount of credibility to a world, like a fantasy world. It's yeah. like, the more fantastic it is, it's like the more realistic and grounded it has to be in other areas. I it's think. very tough you know? to build yeah. a, a world and a society and to make it feel real. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not, I mean, I think everyone thinks, oh, you can just dash something off and that that's fine because it's fantasy and who cares? But people can sense that now, this wasn't very well thought out. Yeah. You know, I mean, or this doesn't make sense with that. Mm-hmm. And that is really, I mean, when you're having to sort of, one thing you don't want to do as a writer, and, and I'm sure that anybody who does write will know this, is you don't want information dumps. You don't want to say, in the, in the city of Cormac, which was inspired 500 years ago, and it became the great capital of, of the Wasatan, and Wasatan was, you know, I mean, you know, you don't want that because basically people will start to fall asleep. Right. And, but you do have to introduce some of these things in the story because people want to know where everything is and how everything is rooted. And so it's, it's an art. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. Well, it's, I think people have to care. I think they have to be like, okay, you're saying all this about this town and this great city, but why should we care? You know, and if you, the big thing, if you got to hook them emotionally somehow... Or, or or have somebody a character that has um, uh, what, what's what's the term for it like a hook or um, something interesting that, that that people can root for mm-hmm. or at least be intrigued by a, in a person and uh, otherwise if it's just kind of details about uh, uh, rocks that are put together very nicely you know yeah and. You sort of have to split the difference because, again, you do have to set up the system. Right. You do, it, it's when do you bring in these facts? You know, I mean, how much do you bring in? I mean, do you like let it sort of dribble in a little bit here and there? Uh, if you don't do it quickly enough, people won't understand what's going on in the story. If you do it too quickly, people will get sort of glassy-eyed. Mm-hmm. So I tip my hat to any science fiction, science fantasy author who creates his own world because it is not easy. Yeah. It is a challenge, as as you all know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've written. I'm trying to think, numerous short stories, but uh, you know, none of them has quite been published yet. Mostly, my comics have, but um, you know, I, I, that's why I commend you. We'll talk about that later. Your, your book, but for just pulling the trigger and putting something out there eventually, and learning how to kind of let go of one's own perfectionism. Uh, that's almost another podcast too. It's like how to know when to let go and to release your baby out into the wild, and uh, you know we all have to come to that point. Um, well, I'll tell you one way to know is is when you start moving into your sixties, you realize <laughs> it's time. Yeah, it's now or never. Wow. You know, and I mean sometimes people will fump for forever, but yeah. I think a lot of times when that clock. You know, it gets close to midnight. You start to say, "Oh, you know, I got to get this done." And uh, for me, the book of poetry, I found poetry to be easier to complete. And as I was completing poems and, and happy with them, and, and I was getting some good reviews from them, I realized, okay, I have maybe I have maybe some a base here that I could build off of. Yeah. So um, I I do want to go back. I am trying to work on a longer form novel now. And um, I'm working in concert with a friend, and I'm hoping that maybe I'll be able to finish it, but yeah. you never know. <laughs> um, 
What, uh, what writing habits do you carry with you to this day that maybe you've developed when you were younger or maybe just a few years ago? Well, it, it's not so much now, uh, but I would say maybe earlier I wrote with pen on a legal pad. A pen on a legal pad. I, I know that a lot of people go straight to the computer to write, but I find myself with, with a legal pad there's lots of space, and if I decide I want to add something in the margin, sideways or up top, or I can put an arrow, uh, I, I just and I, I just find somehow there's a comfort in just using your hands and and actually writing. Mm-hmm. Now, when I start, if I'm if I'm away from an area, sometimes I will I will bang out a chapter with uh, um, uh, with with a computer. But a lot of my poetry is on legal paper initially, and then as I as I get very close to saying, okay, this is it, this is perfect, then I will write it on 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 a computer. But um, there's something about playing with words, scratching them out, going, okay, well, I'll try this again, and then you kind of look at both. Now I know you probably can do that on a computer, but again, I grew up in the analog days, mm-hmm. and so uh, for me, it's probably the big, the biggest habit. And the other big habit is is procrastination. Mm-hmm. I carry that with me now too. Yeah. Uh, I there, I should have I should be on a daily schedule, and I'm not. And and, and a lot of the writers that you kind of look at that have been very successful say they go in there, they go into their office, and they bang out, you know. Two or three or four hours worth of writing, and yeah. or in some cases, if you're like a Stephen King, right. you write for eight hours, you know, because he's turning out a book every other every other year. So, well, I think he does it by words. He's got so many, uh, what is it, like ten thousand words or something, some kind of number there that he's got to hit. Yeah, and he's just uh, just unrelenting about it every day. I got to hit that. Number. Which I admire. I, I wish I wish I had that sort of yeah. discipline. And and again, I'm hoping that working in concert with this friend that uh, I will have a, a better shot at, you know, because I have someone now I have to report to. Oh, wow. And say, okay, well, you know, yeah. this is what I've done. Money. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cool. It's, it's, it is. It's actually kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's actually already helped me out of one cul-de-sac that I put myself into. Which is another big thing, you know, and you probably experience this writing prose is that mm-hmm. you write your story and then all of a sudden you go, okay, now how do I get out of here? You know, mm-hmm. there's just something going, it sounded really good going in, but it's yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. the Roach Motel. You go in, but you can't get out. And right. so it was kind of nice to have somebody say, well, how about this? And I go, oh, okay, that would work. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's helpful because that's a lot of times I will leave a manuscript because I write myself into a cul-de-sac and I can't figure out how to get out. Yeah, or it's like I have often have the problem like, well, this seemed like a good problem, but it's like this would easily be solved by X, Y, and Z, and it's like, well, where's the conflict now? <laughs> and it's like, gosh, you know, it comes down to thinking things through, and sometimes you don't think things through until you're actually doing it. Like, yeah. wait a minute, now I'm starting to realize this could have been solved way easier. Why is this a problem? And uh, yeah, so you're right. You're right. It's you know, it's probably a good idea to write a story outline yeah and i know that i've heard other people say that mm-hmm. and do i do it no but you know i and i think that 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 is a bad habit that i carried with me from that is part of that bad habit not mm-hmm. only procrastination but the fact that i probably don't prep my project well enough before starting it yeah. you know if you have a project idea i will say um i had this idea uh, and I wrote about, I don't know, 70, 80 pages into it. 
And it was a great idea that I came up with while I was shoveling snow last winter. And I was seeing scenes in my head, and I was thinking, I've got to write all this down, and I would write it down. But the thing is, you get 70 or 80 pages in, and then you go, well, okay, but now how do I do this? Or how do I get out of here? Well, see... By that time it was spring, there was no more snow to shovel. So I, I don't know why, but I get ideas. I get ideas when I'm shoveling snow. And, and huh. it's because I guess there's that quiet sort of scraping and you're just kind of on autopilot and yeah. things just come in. But that's not a very good idea if you're trying to write a novel because, you know, if you don't really know where you're going from step A to step Z, you know, I mean, you're stuck somewhere around J, K, or L, you're in trouble. Mm. Now, some writers talk about this. I hear about this in screenplay writing, um, that where they write three by five cards of the characters and the settings, and then they kind of take a step back and look at this big mess of cards, and they put things all over. The, you know, they rearrange things. Do you ever do anything like that? I actually, I actually tried to do a little of that. Uh, there was a. Uh, uh, a blog, a writing blog, and that I was directed to, and what they actually did was they said that these are the pieces of a successful novel. The, the intro, you're introducing the character, the character comes up against an obstacle, there's at a certain point a turning point when the character realizes they can't go back, they have to keep going forward, and so I, I actually tried to write out those cards and look at my story and see where am I on those cards. Um, but, no, not specifically what you said. I, I don't really apply that same philosophy to my own story, which, again, I probably should. Um, but, I, again, I am fortunate that my writing partner is, is kind of there to question me and say, okay, you know, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Where's this going? Mm. And I'd say, I don't know, you tell me. You're my partner, you tell me. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I brought you in for. So, I mean... You know, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things where you, uh, um, you have bad habits and sometimes you get out of them, sometimes you just can't. And you yeah. just have to do the best you can with what you, what you have. Yeah. And, you know, we're living in the age of distraction, the great distraction yeah. period, too. So, it's more Xbox. Distraction box. If I, you know, if I am not playing a game, I, I put in a lot of time on stuff. But if I get hooked in a game, all of a sudden my amount of mm -hmm. time on, on 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 the legal pad goes I know down. That very well, I know and that it's very just well. Like, oh man, it's so. a double sided. It's a double sided sword. It's. Uh, I uh, you know we talked about this the game Skyrim. Yeah. Um, and even before that, we were talking about the gold box series from TSR, the, the Pull Radiance and uh, Curse of Azure Bonds, that whole thing. So I've been playing some old school uh, D and D on my uh, on my computer there, and that you know those games are great, and you should have. I mean, it's entertainment, but it's like you got to be careful how much how much hours you got to be real disciplined. I'm like, I'm gonna put in an hour today and then I'm not going to go over that. <laughs> yeah, <an hour. laughs> You get pulled in a cave on a quest yeah. and you can't get out until it's over. <laughs> I'll stop when I get to this door. I'm going to save right at this door. But you know what? I'm just going to look on the other side of the door. Just I'm just going to look and then you go another 15 minutes and you go, okay, I'm going to stop at this keep. Yeah. Yeah, believe me. And, and, and I'm aware of that. And actually, I was lucky that for a long time there wasn't really anything out there that interested me. So mm -hmm. when I started my my new novel length, uh, I concept, I uh, I got a lot done, and um, you know 
I'm, I'm at a point now where, as I was explaining to my friend, uh, to my partner, um, I think I've set the table now, so now it's a matter of deciding how I want the characters to move. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, we'll see. Again, we'll see what happens because I've been here before. Um, Many times before. <laughs> Have you ever been inspired while playing one of these games? Yes. Actually, yeah. yes. I, I, played, uh, I played Dishonored. And um, loved the game. I mm. loved the images of the game. And I tried to write my own steampunk version mm -hmm. of, uh, of a story. But I realized that probably to write steampunk, you ought to read steampunk. Mm -hmm. It's not enough sure. just to... It's not enough just to see the game because, you, you know, again, I come from a sword and sorcery background. And so, you know, you're not going to have a wizard that's going to, you know, I mean, not in steampunk, you know. So, so you realize, okay, I, 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 I probably, and it wasn't really exactly steampunk, but it, it had those sort of influences to it. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized that I really didn't know where to go with that story. Um, you were you were in the group when I submitted like chapters of Mondane. I think so. It's yeah. been a little that's while. That's why I was. That's why I was talking. Yeah, about. yeah. Um, um, did you? I mean, maybe if you could refresh my memory on the the concept of the story you were working on. There. Well, it was just it, it was just two characters, two mismatched characters, which and that and that kind of went back to uh, Fafra and the Gray Mouse. Right. You know, I liked I liked the mismatched character concept. And and um, you know. Uh, Basically, they each have a story arc, and they're they're living in a world that has most everything is steam powered, and um, uh, the character Ma she doesn't, or at least she tells everybody she doesn't actually know her name or her past, but it's not revealed, you know, yet in the pages that I'd written whether she really does or not. Although I I know, but uh, so. Um, I like I said, I really loved the game Dishonored. I wanted to take influences from it. I was writing down descriptions and and uh, uh, I got pretty far into it. But I will say that this is before I had a lot of bad habits stripped out of my writing mm -hmm. because one of the things that I I belong to the same writing group that you do, right. uh, uh, Saint Clair Shores. Um, yeah, Saint Clair Shores writing group represent yeah, creative yeah. writing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, that you can get into through Meetup.com. There you go. They meet, Come on they over meet to at this very place. <laughs> um, but actually, in going there, I was able to sort of see that I was making some mistakes that that editors didn't like. So, I, if I were to go back on that story, too much description, too much. Uh, front loading of yeah. characters. If I had three new characters, I would feel that I had to fully describe them and the room that they were in. Well, you, you, yeah. you've already put in five pages of description, and it slows everything down. I, with what I'm working with now, I'm much more conscious of giving just enough description to give a vague picture to people, and yeah. maybe throwing in little comments. You know, he he. You know, he scratched his chubby cheek or his broken nose. You know, shined and you know. Things like that, where you don't put it in the general description, but you add it, mix it in with conversation, and so you can give people a little bit more of the details without loading all that stuff in in one big dollop. Right. Ah, that's that's really good as a writer to to hear that from you, and uh, hopefully some of our other writers out there will will take a, take note. 
The big now. thing, and we've talked about this, and our group has talked about this, but the big thing is, is that when you're writing, especially dialogue, it's a wonderful way to sort of feed in mannerisms, feed in characteristics in little tiny bits, but it gives you more... So instead of having to fully describe somebody's face, I mean, you can you can mention, you know, again, you know, hey, you know, I don't know why you're going in there. He said, well, he scratched the stubble under his chin. Right. So all right, now you've established that he has stubble under his chin, you know. And I mean, you know, you've given him a mannerism that, you know, I mean, gives the, the reader a picture of what, the, what are these people doing while they're talking. They're not just standing in space with their arms down at their sides. So it's, it's something that, you know, I would definitely say I picked up from the group. Hmm. And it's, it's the nice thing about the group that we're in is that, you know, you do get a variety of opinions. And sometimes when two or three people say the same thing, you have to kind of go, I need to look at that. Yeah. And you won't necessarily get that from friends and family no. if you're lucky enough for them no. to read anything. <laughs> well, mom, mom is going to say, this is perfect. Why isn't it published? Yeah. You know, and I mean, that's the problem. You don't want to get slaughtered. I mean, we, and yeah. we don't do that. We try not to do that. Yeah. But you do want to try to give some honest opinions as sure. readers. Even if you're not an expert in the field, you can simply say, I don't know, this part really kind of confused me. I didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. And then you do have to go back and look at it. Mm-hmm. I find it also strengthens my skills as a critique person because that's one thing I'd barely done before, probably not since college, was critique work. And if anything, that's a muscle in itself to yeah. exercise that. Yeah. And, uh, and that's one of the great things about joining a writer's group is that not only is your work being critiqued, but you, you, <laughs> you get to critique other, other people's work. But, hey, it's still there's some pressure there to be like, I want whatever I say and tell them to be of some kind of use. Yeah. And um, I, I would like to think that just another pair of eyes looking over it that are completely different from yours and have different have a different thought process than you do will help in some kind of way, in an outsider kind of way. Well, you know? <clears throat> what, I've, what I've often said, too, is, is that uh, I feel that as, as you get deeper into the group and you, you spend more time in the group, you get a sense of what everybody wants. Some people will want you tear it apart. I want to know what you didn't like and what's wrong. Some people, not so much. They, they're, they're writing for their own self-expression. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, you know, you can correct a few things, but they're not looking for, like, they're not looking to be slaughtered, you know. I mean, uh, so I, I sort of feel like, yes, not only does it develop your ability to, to critique, but when you're critiquing somebody else's work, sometimes it bounces back on what you're doing and you go, I'm doing what I told that person not to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, it makes you more self-aware of, of, of your writing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that, and I don't know, I, I will say Shelley. One of these, Shelley. <laughs> the one of the things, yes, yeah, so the last <laughs> name we won't go to. But one of the things she taught me about was adverbs. Yeah. And, and saying, and, oh, and yeah. I used a lot of adverbs. Yeah, slightly, quickly, mm-hmm. deftly. And she said, instead of using an adverb, use a stronger verb. Yeah. So now you see other people writing and you go, ah, I see it. Yeah. And so you're aware of theirs, so now you're much more aware of what you're doing. I mean, I, I do still do use some adverbs, but... I mean, Sparing. not as many. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, anyway, well, you touched on something that is interesting. Um, <coughs> in a writer, uh, having a, a fellow well, accountability buddy, how does one go about getting a, a, someone to hold you accountable? Um, how did you start that process? 
Well, you have to find somebody that you think understands what you're doing mm-hmm. and shares your interest in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I think there's it's, it's just a feeling out process. Okay. Is this person, uh, I don't mean a private, a close friend or <coughs> someone you found through a person, a friend of a friend or online or... Uh, well, actually, no, it's Shelly. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it can be a friend or somebody, uh, either somebody that you already know uh, from a group that you're in part with, uh, part in, in with. Um, good, good, good. Let me move on to my next question. Um, now, we were talking about fantasy, and what was the book that had, the book, you were doing a short story, I don't think it's done yet. Maybe it was, it, was, it might have been Demon Dicer. We don't have to talk about that if you don't. I know it's set in a post-apocalyptic world. That was world. The, uh, st- the steampunk. Thing. That was the steampunk one. Okay. All right. So we did already kind of touch on that then. Um, so you're kind of mixing uh, the post-apocalyptic genre with, well, steampunk with steampunk. Mm-hmm. And was it kind of a fantasy too, a little bit of sword, sorcery there, or it was mostly just kind yeah, of... Yeah, I, I was mixing genres, and that was part yeah. of my problem. Yeah. Was that... Um, I didn't really know how far to go with uh, with that mixture mm-hmm. because you might turn off people that are into steampunk. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're if you're doing like sword and sorcery, which a, a little of it kind of felt that way for me, right? Um, <clears throat> you may not be really helping those people get into your story either. Uh. So I wasn't sure. Huh. Um, that's where I sort of started to uh, uh, lose steam, steampunk. Sorry, yeah. no, no, no pun intended. Um, and uh, I just, I just drifted away from it. Uh, huh? You think you're going to be returning to that world anytime soon, or what do you think? Um, well, it's it's not high on my list, but it, it definitely is possible. Yeah, I kind of wanted to, to do it. Just solely for friends, because the names actually came from uh, friends from many, many years ago who had just for the fun of it had kind of concocted these characters back when they were going to conventions. So Ma and Dane were actually Ma was one friend and Dane was this other guy, and they had, they sort of concocted this idea, which they never did anything with, but for some reason the names stuck with me all these years later, and. Um, I just decided I wanted to do something with it, and so I, I like the concept. I like the I like the idea behind it, but I need guidance on where I want the story to go because it's not like you can defeat a wizard or anything like that. I mean, steampunk or this variation of steampunk is different. So mm-hmm. I needed a villain that would sort of fit well into the world, and I hadn't really come up with that villain yet. I hadn't really come up with a plot that I didn't think was uh, hackneyed, you know, done a million mm-hmm. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of the problem with fantasy is that so many people have done it, and, you know, and so many people have done it so well Yeah. that, you know, when you come up and try to do the same thing, you're going to be measured against Tolkien, you know. Yeah. Or, I mean, and it's like, okay, that's not a fair comparison, but, you know, I mean, if you're if that's what you're writing, that's what people are going to do. Um, now you, you talked about villains there, which kind of brings me to a point I wanted to bring up with one of your short stories. 
Um, one of them has to do with a kind of an unsympathetic character, unforgiving kind of character. He, he came off as kind of like a someone who's got a lot of money, but he's kind of a oh, yeah. racist or bigot in a way. That that was a that was a story that took a long time to to. Basically, the concept was I was trying to write several stories that I would consider to be Twilight Zone stories. All right, yeah. And I, I had written a series of five stories. And some of them came off very successfully, and I think actually were truly surprising, and that's not easy to do anymore. But I had this concept of a guy who's looking to buy a gift for his nephew, who he really doesn't like, but he, he wants to almost use the gift to show off his wealth. So he's looking for something spectacular. And I think in a way he was looking to basically berate salespeople. You know, ah, this is ridiculous. This is, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all of a sudden he's approached by this little rotund man who appeared in an earlier story who people that read the earlier story know was the devil, knew yeah. to be the devil. And the devil basically says, well, I have something for you that, you know, is is perfect if you want to come to the shop. So... He comes to the shop eventually because he can't find anything that he really, really wants. And I think there's a little bit of that sort of the devil planting the hook. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe the story in full because obviously there's a lot of little nuances and stuff. But the thing is, the devil gives him a box and says, this, this is a vision box. And, you know, you don't open it. You can give it to your nephew. It will probably be the greatest gift he will never you will, he will never get a gift greater than this. Yeah. Well, you know, there's 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 the problem then of the boxes gift wrap sitting on his table, yeah. and eventually he ends up opening it, and it's what happens afterwards that becomes the end of the story. And I had like three or four different endings for this story, and couldn't quite decide on which one I wanted uh, because none of them really quite fit. But this one, the ending that I basically came up with was the closest to fitting. And I, I kind of liked the idea um, that I kind of took things off into a completely different realm with what comes out of the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It allowed me to get really gross. It was gross, but it was it was fun. I'm glad that you... Well, I don't want to give too much away for the eventual reader of the story, but... I'm glad that you went that route with it and you didn't just keep it a mystery. Like, we'll never know. You'll never see it and it'll never come out. And I mean, that's those those just kind, kind of stories are good, but it's, it's hard to pull that off. And sometimes they're not that fun, you know. But sometimes it's good to show the creature coming out, you know. Yes, and <laughs> the know? creature and the creature does. Yeah. yeah. And and the idea is, is that um, it's sort of, gives him visions that actually shows him who he is. And um, the ending is not very pleasant. And uh, it was, I don't know if it was a completely successful story, but it's one of those things where I think it's close. It's like 90% there. Uh, I I may eventually revisit all of those short stories because I have one more that, again, is in the same position of being about 60% complete. And I'm just not sure about the ending. Yeah. But I've been happy with a lot of the short stories. It's very difficult, as I said before, to surprise people. It, you know, almost every twist of fate or story twist has been done. So, you know, some of the things may not be a complete surprise, 
but I hope that some element of each story has a little bit of a twist, a Twilight Zone twist. Yeah. Yeah, so you would say definitely the Twilight Zone uh, is definitely a big inspiration. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rod Serling mm-hmm. is like, you know, he's like another god. I mean, really. <laughs> when you, no, I mean, yeah. when you see all of the fantastic episodes that he wrote, and Richard Matheson, I think, was oh, yeah. another one. Yeah. I mean, they wrote stuff that was just amazing, and it was yeah. almost like on an assembly line. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like you have one good idea, yeah. uh, you know, Look, M. Night Shyamalan, I, I feel feel bad for him in the sense that, you know, he has this terrific first movie, and then how do you follow it up? Everyone's looking for the twist after that. Nobody expected the twist yeah. in the first movie. Now everyone's looking for the twist, and they go, I saw that coming. Mm-hmm. And you feel bad for the guy. But, but the Twilight Zone, I mean, there were so many different ways that those stories played out. It was really hard. And, and at the time, I don't think people were quite as prepared for these kinds of twist endings. I mean, this was sort of a new thing. And there's so many amazing stories that are iconic that, that basically, unless you just don't watch television at all, you go, yeah, I know that one. Mm-hmm. I know that one. And I, I just, um, I, I really, I'm really impressed and amazed with, with the, the type of work that Rod Serling did. I mean, what, a, what a writer. I mean, he was, he was just phenomenal. He just get, he just always give a great case of why I love fiction so much is that you can say so much with fiction than you can sometimes with just nonfiction and just kind of by using different uh, maybe alien races or um, uh, fictional situations set in the future that comment on what's going on. We know there's and and, and yeah exactly the the stuff yeah. is still fresh even though it was done in the fifties. There's yeah. a there's a famous episode where there's like four couples sitting around a, a dining room table and they're clearly neighbors, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they hear on the television that the uh, missiles have been launched from Russia and that everyone needs to get to their fallout shelter. Okay, yeah. well the one family that's hosting the the dinner they have a fallout shelter. The other three couples don't. Yeah. So they run home. The, the, the one family is they're preparing their fallout shelter. And now the couple's, hey, listen, do you have room for like two more? No, we don't. We just built this big enough. Well, you know, I have a child. And, you know, I mean, and so now they're starting to bargain with him, argue with him. One of the couples is, I believe, is Mexican. And, and one, one of the other couple says, they're not even Americans. You know, and I, I just thought, wow, that, you could use that today. No, you know, I mean, just the fact that, that one couple was ethnic. Yeah, you know, yeah. all of a sudden they're not. You know, they're not. And again, I'm sort of, I'm sort of capsulizing everything very quickly, but it literally comes down to the point where they're trying to pry them out of their fallout shelter, mm-hmm. and then you find out that it was a false alarm, and and you know, and after these couples have torn each other apart, well, he, I have kids, he doesn't have kids. Well, you're not American, and all of a sudden now the, the, the it's all over, and the the three couples are trying again. They're all trying to like. Well, uh, you know, we'll help you fix the damage, and you know, and I mean, this this couple are—they're just shaken. It's like they see the true face of their neighbors. Yeah, and you just go, it's a half an hour, it's a brilliant half an hour, and it's relevant even today. Yeah, it just—they had some kind of momentum going in the in the writers' room there that. It was amazing. You know, I'm sure the deadlines—they had to get something done by a certain amount of time, and I think part of that probably made this. 
that pressure, it was just a pressure cooker of, of greatness, of these great self-contained stories that come in it. I know I'm forgetting Everything. somebody, but like I say, Richard Matheson was in there, and there was another writer that, that did, I believe, that did a lot of writing for that series. But, I mean, between the three or four of those main writers, they just turned out just a tremendous volume of work that's really, just really high-quality work. You just kind of go, wow, that, that's amazing. I mean, it just shows you, like, the, the waves of that, and it hits your work, and hopefully some of that greatness trickles down <laughs> at the year. And I think some of it does. I think that some of the last few short stories you've done, I, I kind of call it the, the devil trilogy in a way, or uh, both of them, like, you have this nefarious character in the back kind of manipulating things and pulling strings, but letting, sitting back and letting human nature of this particular person play itself out. Well, the very, first, the very first short story I did where I put the devil in is sort of this dapper, sort of British butler, kind yeah. of rotund, you know, oiled hair, you know, he looked very... And I, I did it, I think, in two parts. And there was a friend at the writer's group who came up to me after the first part, he goes, dude, this concept is as old as, you know, he says, you know, it's... It's just old. It's tired. Mm -hmm. I said, well, just, just read the second part. Just read the second part and then let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud. And one of the proudest things about, uh, the proudest moments of my life in this group was that he came back and said, you got me. I didn't expect that. Hmm. You know, that was, nice. that was Steve. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just, I, yeah. was, I, was, I was over the moon because you hope that you're going to catch people yeah. with it. And you're never really sure... Is it too obvious? Is it too obscure? And you know, yeah, it's I mean, tough. It was it was great because it's as a writer, it's like gosh, if you don't want to beat people over the head with it, but yeah. then you don't want to give them too much or too little, and it's like again, that's the, the that's the that's why it's valuable to have a group of people to yeah. take it to. Absolutely, they can, they're outside your head and they can give you their honest. Uh, I mean, I highly recommend it. I mean, yeah. if you if you don't find our writers group, I mean, you know, try to find a writers group yeah. somewhere, and yeah. they're all different. And uh, hopefully, you find something that fits the character mm -hmm. that you're interested in. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, I'm just going to cover a little bit more about your your poetry here because um, I see you have a book on the table there. Um, now, I'm not much of a poetry guy, but I think the more poetry I've read by you, it makes me appreciate it a lot more and helps me kind of get into it, step into well, it. Well, you, you, know. you folks should know that I've worn out Chris's thesaurus. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was already I, pretty worn I out. I feel bad, but... I yeah. got it from the dollar store, I mean, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And I, I take a little pride in that yeah. because, because I was trying to sort of create a mood or an aura of sort of a yesteryears type poetry, something yeah. that, you know, used words, because when you're using rhyme and meter, much like trying to write a Twilight Zone story, you know, a, a lot of the, the normal phrases and words that are used, they're, they're, they, be, they sound trite, and, and people yeah. will rightly say the sort of moon, june, spoon poetry you know, I mean, it's just like, yeah, okay, you can see the, you can see the next word coming a mile away. So I try to use words that are uh, maybe a little more obscure, but not totally unrelatable. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of look at your poetry as kind of like a, a, a puzzle that you have to kind of um, unlock in a way, which is challenging. And I, you know, it's like it's it, it's tough, but in a way, it's it's rewarding. And I think. I think that that's it's a great thing to have as a writer. Um, 
I think it, it's a, it says so much about you as, as your, your skill level and your, uh, your, how you're able to put together certain words and phrases without repeating yourself. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's a problem. That's tough. Um, so that book, the book that you have, the, let's see, it's... It's Anathema and the Psalms of Shadow and Flesh. Yes. And we'll probably do an insert so you'll be able to see the cover. Right. Um, yeah, it's, um, basically, I tried to find a very pretentious title that would stop people in their tracks. What the heck? As much as like the cover, because I mean, you know, the cover, I I managed to find this cover and um, I just thought, oh, this is perfect. I mean, it's it's eerie and it seems like it has some sort of secret content in it, the burning rose that this guy is holding. What does that signify? Right. And so... I thought yes, it, it's it's absolutely. The, I was not looking for this kind of cover, but when I found it, I said, "This is this is." I think this is some guy in Russia. He's got about ten or twelve different poses. Yeah, <laughs> with his tongue out. Yeah, well, not all of them with his tongue out, but uh, I mean, and and it may not come through. You can see details better when yeah. you actually see the actual physical copy of him. Yeah. But it, it almost looks like a silhouette, but it's not. Yeah, and. Um, I just went, wow, that is just, that's startling, you know? And so I I wanted an image and I wanted a name that would stop people and maybe make them consider the idea of of picking the book up. All right. And and so that is pretty much much, um, a series of poems that you've written throughout the years. Um, What years would you say uh, all those poems? The vast majority of them were probably written in in the... uh, uh, maybe 2008 to 2000. But there are some things that I refurbished from my rock and roll past and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and needed to refurbish them because <laughs> when I saw them, uh, a tip to writers, and probably almost everybody knows this, is that whenever you write something, put it away for a couple of months and then read it again. Yeah. And you kind of go, whoa, okay, I didn't see that at all. I mean, it's you sometimes get so close that you don't see it. And I was thinking, man, I've got all this great stuff, you know, tucked away in my cabinets. And I'm reading it and going, no, I, don't, I didn't remember it being like that, you know. And so I would have to, I would take it, I would take the bones of the piece and, and have to completely rework it. But I would say, like I say, most of the new stuff is probably, again, between uh, about 2006, 2008 to... Okay. to uh, 2017. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you plan on doing an anthology series with your, your prose, your, your fiction prose as well, or what do you think? Well, again, I, I I had considered a book of short stories. Yeah. But I almost tend to think that a book of short stories is kind of like a book of rhyme and meter poetry. I don't know how many people will buy it. Unless yeah. your name is Rod Serling or Richard mm-hmm. Matheson. A lot of people don't buy anthologies. You know, I mean, they want to get into a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I did this for me, uh, as I've as I've told people in the group. Um, I wanted to finish a project, and it was important for me to know that this book is on Amazon, and that some people have stumbled across it. I actually had two, sa- three sales last year. Um, and you know, but I don't know who they are. Right. So there, you know, somebody may have looked at it and said, "Well, I'll give it a shot." You know, I'll yeah. give it a try. I've gotten some decent reviews, which I'm very pleased with. Yeah. And uh, it's 
it was it was just it's just fulfilling to finally finish after all of these abortive attempts to to yeah. do a, a novel and yet I'm back trying to do another novel so yeah. so I think t- probably I would I would push the novel first and see where I go with it right. and then uh, as I said I do have a couple more short stories that are in various stages of completion are they enough to fill a book I'm not sure right I'm not sure so. Well, you seem to be very much a master of uh, uh, short, short stories, where people keep, you could get them to the conclusion within, you know, if I say five pages, you know, I think you're. Well, really some, good at, I, I, you know. some of them are a little longer than that. Yeah, I've had to break them up into, into yeah, you're installments. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it. I mean, the short stories were nice because again, you could take a concept, you knew where you were going. You didn't have to worry about five hundred pages. You, yeah. you were you get maybe thirty pages or forty pages, mm-hmm. and it's it's just a lot more satisfying to then finish it and say, okay, I like this, and you know, believe me, I have a cabinet full of critiques from the group, you know, that I've looked mm-hmm. at and I've applied to the the short yeah. stories, and you know, I, I suppose that if I do decide to redo things, I will look at them again and see what you know with fresh eyes and see what bothers me and you know what what I think works yeah excellent excellent um well I think I think uh you, you really put a lot into your, your poetry and, and I think it's all going to pay off eventually it's just I think oh it, it already has off. it already has I, I I'm not concerned yeah. I'm not concerned about money or fame or anything like that but yeah. I'm a creative person at heart. I yeah. like projects. I, I've always liked projects, you know. And so, for me, and I could not have done this without the writers group. And then I've, I, I actually have, uh, you know, a little sort of acknowledgement in the front of the book, you know, basically saying thank you to the people of of the writers group that I'm in, uh, because um, I really wanted to have something that represented me. And and you know, whether or not anybody. Um, ever finds it again. I know my book is on Amazon. And, you know, and I know that somebody may stumble across it. And actually, I had a sort of an interesting experience a couple of weeks ago where I I just decided to Google my name. And I got people talking about the book. And they, it's it's almost as if it was an e-book. Now, I haven't done an e-book version Mm. of this yet. So I don't know if this was bootlegged or what, but, you know, I'm... Weird. I had that experience with in in the the initial rock band that I was in, where uh, you know we did one single, uh, yeah. uh, three songs, uh, two on one side, one on the other, and um, all of a sudden they started appearing on retrospectives, huh. you know, garage bands and that. Detroit garage <laughs> bands from uh, the seventies, and yeah. you just go, you know, nobody asked for our our you know, they they didn't ask if it was okay. But yeah, but yeah. I don't care. It doesn't uh, really matter to me. I mean, it's I never really imagined making a lot of money on rhyme and meter poetry or yeah, or music. Yeah. But I, it 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 just feels good for the soul, you know, to finish something. Yeah, I think that's boy, that's you hit it on the head. Like you're doing something for the sake of doing it. Yeah, and enjoying the process. I think a lot of people that want to be creative, I think they go in with the wrong intentions. I think they think I want to do something big that's going to sell a lot and I'm going to make a lot of money. I want this is going to be this story. I'm, I want to be next the next George R. R. Martin, or I want to be the next uh, Stan Lee or Jack Kirby or something like that. And it's like they don't understand. It's like it's a it's a marriage. You do it for the sake of doing it because you need to get it out of your mind and out of your your soul. You know. You know one one uh, complaint that I've heard or one comment that I've heard is 
well, why are you doing this? You're not going to make yeah. any money out of it. And my answer is always this. How is this any better or worse than sitting watching football every weekend yeah. or going at bowling or, you know, when people used to bowl a lot yeah. or, or hiking or kayaking? How is it any different, any worse or better use of my time? We're, we're filling time until we die. Yeah. And it's like, so if I want to write, you know, I want to write. Some people want to paint. They may never sell a painting, but they want to paint. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's self, self-fulfilling. I mean, you, you feel that, you know, it, it gives you pleasure just to, yeah. just to know that this book is on my shelf. You know, it, it gives me pleasure to know that I actually finished this and there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot in there, yeah. you know? So, um, I, you know, I, I just tend not to listen to those people because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I look at them and I, I think to myself, so what are you doing that's so great? Are you curing cancer? Right. You know, I mean, really, art, everyone should try something in art. Art is, art is a very fulfilling thing, and, and it's just, uh, it's a shame, really, that more people don't get involved. Oh, yeah. This brings me to my, my last and final question, and um, I think this will be a good one to leave off on. Um, what would you say to the beginning writer... Um, uh, who's just getting on their career? I touched on this in the beginning, but I want—I guess I'll bookend it this with this. Um, they just—they—they—they're having a hard time f- dredging for something. You have a well that you go to, story well, um, internally or externally that you go to to grab these great stories out of the ether and be like, "This is this is what I, I always have this to pull things out of." I mean, you know. Um... I, lately, I've found that I've, I've web surfing has given me ideas. Hmm. I I uh, would, you know, there's always this column on the right side of like uh, YouTube and and sometimes even just regular general pages that will that will have different uh, suggestions mm-hmm. of videos and things. And sometimes you start clicking and you start get far afield and you find this really strange story. Um, there's a poem in my book called Agomatophilia. And what I found is, is that there is a condition that's, well, not a condition, but there, there's a, uh, something that some people have where they transfer their feelings to dolls or statues. And I read a story about someone, and I think she was in England, and she has like a three-foot statue of David, you know, uh, uh, was that Da Vinci or Michelangelo? Do you remember? I can't, I can't mm. remember who, who actually carved the David statue. But sure she is. actually takes it on dates. Yeah. You know, and she <laughs> transferred... Well, I know it sounds yeah. funny, but yeah. it's, it's kind of like the human condition. She, yeah. So that became the basis for a poem, you know. And, and uh, you, you can find these little sort of strange stories on the, online... And they can inspire either prose or poetry. It just yeah. depends. But you know, I, I the only thing that I the only thing I can tell you is you keep your eyes open. You jot down everything. I mean, I I often refer to a lot of the st- the pages that I have on you know uh, on the legal pad as bones. You know, I might I might hear a phrase in my head, write the phrase down. You might come back to it six months later, and now you know what to do with it. But you just you're just aware of everything going on around you, and if something sounds really interesting, write it down, and keep your eyes open, you know, because there there's stuff out there, you know, and um, uh, I 
I just think, like I say, I'm, I'm amused by some of the things that I found online that I ended up turning into bizarre poetry, but, mm-hmm. but you know, poetry nonetheless. And they don't necessarily have to be news stories, would you say? No, no. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, uh, another uh, thing. It may sound like I, I only go to seedy parts of the Internet, which is, is not really true, but I, I was looking up something about agomatophilia. And, uh, you know, and again, there were these suggestions. And so there was, there is also this fetish about what they call pony girls and pony boys. Mm-hmm. And they dress up in bridle and tack and they have people that they pull around in carts and I mean I guess maybe this is something like the furries I mean there's something that everybody knows and and I've never heard of it before so of course I'm I'm paging through it you know looking at it and go oh this is a poem you know I mean you know I I could see this as lyrics to a song so there you go some weird little sort of side route you know, and, and you, you, you develop a poem or you develop a short story out of it. And some of my short stories came from uh, just looking at the news, you know, and I mean, yeah. uh, which I won't discuss because I haven't finished it yet. Uh-huh. But I mean, but I, yeah, I definitely have a, a story that's sitting there that uh, um, is very much in the news today. And, and uh, I just, I don't know how it's going to come out yet. <laughs> well, Arthur Sukaluk, um I think that's going to wrap it up. We could do a part two to this eventually. I think there's a lot. There's a lot here. I really appreciate the time that you took here to explain your, your writing. And I think it's just... Everybody check out his book. Oh. You want to hold the book up again? As, uh, okay. And Anathema. Anathema. And the, and the Psalms, Psalms of Shadow, of Shadow and Flesh. Now, actually, it is going to be redone. Um, I am working on it right now. So if you are interested, maybe wait till April or May. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll get some of the nasty uh, problems out of it. And you, you're always going to have some things that you want to change, but when you get a typo, you got to change it because it's <laughs> going to drive you crazy. So, so maybe guess, next time, maybe yeah. if you maybe next time if you want, I'll, I'll read a couple poems. Oh, oh. Well, I'm not going to hold you back. You want to read one before we? Go. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. yeah. Let me let me read one. Yeah. Um, we were talking about uh, we were talking about. Uh, how do you get inspired? So mm-hmm. this is a, a poem called Metallurgy. And <clears throat> you may get what inspired this poem. Um, but I decided to mix the concept of metals with a person. So here, this is Metallurgy. Descending from the high-rise keep, his tongue arrayed with silver spoons, with copper coins for bleeding sheep, and subtle nods to right-wing loons. No tin man's heart inside his chest, his only love to close the deal. So mesmerized by most and best, a temper barbed with tempered steel. An iron hand replete with rust for holding paper tigers down, his coffers fed by daddy's trust, his rules enforced by daddy's crown. A drunken god, an April fool, a hero to the working class, who teach us all one simple rule, that good as gold is trumped. By brass. <laughs> you, I, I, no particular person in mind when I when I came up with that. Poem, so. But you know, I mean, huh. it's it's a it was that's a great. weird sort of mixture of metals yeah. and a person. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. 
it's, it's something to ponder on for a while, reread. And uh, again, it's just it's a lot going on there. And uh, I think if you pick up his book, which it will be on Amazon, hopefully pick it up around April. Yeah, April or May. <laughs> if, if you don't mind a few typos. I think you'll be extremely rewarded by his work. He's put a lot of thought and a lot of time into his words that he's, that he's chosen for, carefully for each, each uh, poem. And um, I think his heart and soul is, is in there. And um, it's got one heck of a creepy cover. That's right. That's right. Specially designed. All right, Arthur. Thank you so much. Thank for you, Chris. I appreciate coming it. Coming here today. It was, it was enjoyable. I appreciate it.